Well, this morning we are continuing in our series, God's Master Plan, part two, looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which we call Ephesians. And throughout this letter, we've really seen two movements occur. The first is, in the first three chapters, we watched Paul set up kind of a theological foundation for the Christian faith, for what it is that he's calling the church in Ephesus to. And now, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're seeing Paul give a practical application to this theology. So he's given us the theology, and then he's applying it to the lives of the church in Ephesus. How do they live out their faith? And so the question for us is, how do we take these foundational truths, these facts about who we are, about who God is, about what salvation is, and how do we apply all of this to our lives? This is the question that I think Paul is seeking to answer, and we're right now in the middle of those application chapters. Chapter 5, which we're going to be jumping into today, is a rich chapter. There is so much in this chapter, I almost feel like it could be a mini-series in of itself, and yet the way the time works, we just can only spend a couple of weeks looking at chapter 5. But I would encourage you to dive even deeper into it, to go back and read it again for yourself and to study it, because there is so much in this one chapter that Paul has written to the Ephesians. But before we jump into chapter 5 today, let's pray together and ask for God's guidance. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, for this letter that Paul wrote thousands of years ago to the church in Ephesus. And yet, Lord, it is relevant to us today, right here in Springfield, Oregon. And so we pray that you would give us your guidance, your wisdom, Lord, that you would give us clarity as we study it. And Lord, may nothing that I say get in the way of what you wish to declare here today, but may you be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, earlier this week, I was looking back through my photos on my computer which the problem that we all have now that we've gone digital for most of us is we just have so many photos and videos and they just pile up and often they're not looked at. And so I'd, I was in my iPhoto library and I'd clicked on videos and I was going back and watching these different videos from the last few years. And a couple years ago, I stumbled across this video. And the video is of my son Silas, who's now 10 years old. And it was a couple years ago and he's dressed up, he's holding a piece of paper in his hands and he's wearing a bolo tie, which he was given by Ron Tompkins, which was just makes me smile every time I see it. And I played the video, and Silas starts, and he says, I'm, uh, I'm going to preach my sermon that I've prepared for you. You see, Silas, a couple years back, decided that he wanted to preach a sermon to his class. And so he took time to pick out a passage of Scripture to do the hard work of exegeting a text not really, but just find a couple application points he could pull out of this text for his classmates. And he asked his teacher, can I preach a sermon to the class? And she, of course, since my kids are out of Christian school, said, lovely, that would be great. And so Silas got to stand in front of his class, I believe then it was on Zoom, and preach this short couple-minute sermon to his class. And as I watched this, it just hit me how much we don't realize at times that kids imitate their parents. For better or for worse, often our kids look at us and imitate us as parents, especially when you have young children. And it made me think about how I act. How do I respond to my kids day in and day out? What are they seeing as they watch me so closely? In fact, even this week I was having a conversation with Silas about handwriting because we were encouraging him to write just a little bit bigger. And, and he said, but you write small, Dad. 
And I said, I don't write that small. And he said, well, you kind of write small, and, and I kind of copy your writing. And I thought, wow, he's imitating my handwriting. You see, we all tend to imitate others, whether it be a dad that you imitate or, or whether it's someone who you watched graciously age, and now that you're getting older, you're trying to figure out how you can embody those same qualities and characteristics. Or maybe it's a friend who you looked up to who was a hard worker, who had tenacity and worked day in and day out hard at their job, and you're trying to embody those same qualities in your life. Or maybe it's a parent who you watched raise godly children, and you're trying to implement everything that you saw that they did. You see, we all watch what happens around us. We all watch how others live their lives and pick and choose which pieces we want to imitate. It's part of how we learn and grow. It's part of how we find success is watching others and imitating what they do. But the question for us this morning is, what is it or who is it that you are going to imitate? You see, when I thought about Silas imitating me, it made me question, well, who is it that I'm imitating with my life? Who is it who I'm looking to and, and trying to glean from and shape my life around? And you may wonder, why does this matter? Well, it matters because we need to be wise with how we lead our lives, with how we shape our lives, and who it is that we're seeking to live after. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's encouraging them to focus their imitations upon God first and foremost, which I know seems like the obvious answer here in church is that we should imitate God, but let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 and see how Paul plays that out practically for the church in Ephesus. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, you can follow along in your pew Bible or on your phones or on the screen behind me. But Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, this is what Paul says to the Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So Paul starts off this chapter right away with this call to the church to be imitators of God. Now he starts with this therefore. So because of what's happened in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, which we talked about last week, where we see that Christ forgave us, Paul now says because of what Christ has done, because of the ways in which Christ has shown love to us and forgiveness to us, therefore we are to imitate God. And that's what Paul calls us to do. Because we are his beloved children, thus we should want to be like him in all aspects of our lives. Now, a note here, this is not us trying to be God. That would not be okay. When Paul says be imitators of God, he's not calling for us to try to become God, but to start to mold and shape our lives to be like God. And there's an important difference there because none of us should strive to be God, but we should strive to mold our lives to look like Him and to imitate Him. This idea of imitating God is to follow or endeavor to follow as a model or an example to us of how our lives should be. Think of mimicking someone like Silas did with me, like you've done with others. It's the idea of looking to someone else to then shape ourselves after them. And Paul calls us to do this of who God is, of his character, of his qualities, of his characteristics, that we are to be imitators of God because we are his beloved children. 
I love this word beloved. In fact, if you've ever talked to me about Bible translations, that's one of the reasons why I use the English Standard Version in my studies, because I like how it uses the word beloved still, where some of the other translations like the NIV or the New Living remove it because they think it's too old of a word. And yet there's just a connotation that that word brings, in my mind at least, that has a deeper meaning than just saying like friend. When Paul says beloved children, and that word beloved has two special applications that we see in Scripture. One of them is when it's used as a title for the Messiah, for Christ. That throughout Scripture we see it used referring to Christ as beloved beyond all others. And God sends him to us, but it's also used to refer to Christians as beloved by God. And the picture that Paul paints here is that it's because we are beloved by God, because he cares so deeply for us, that we are to imitate him with our lives. And we see the same sense elsewhere in Scripture. It reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 1, 15-16, where we're told, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." You see, Paul wants those who follow Christ to recognize that they are now his beloved children. And just like a child imitating his dad, we too are called to imitate God. But what does it look like to imitate God? How do we put that into practice? Well, Paul tells us right here in verse 2, he tells us, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see, Christ was the model that we are to follow after, and as he came to earth, God incarnate, as he walked the earth in love, gave himself up for us sacrificially, took our place on the cross, and went to the death for our sins, for your sins, as the atonement for us, as a substitutionary atonement for us. He showed us that sacrificial love. He showed us what it looks like to live with love. So that's what Paul tells us to do as well, to walk in love as we follow after Christ's example. I love the way that the ESV expository commentary puts this idea of walking in love. It says, love is the most important of all virtues because when it's consistently displayed, all of the other virtues will naturally be embraced. When Christians love each other, they'll be careful to speak kindly to each other. They won't speak wrathfully or maliciously towards one another, but instead they'll be willing to work hard so they can share with those in need. See, we too are to imitate God and thus love well, to be willing to give of ourselves towards each other, even to go as far as to sacrificially love for one another in our pursuit of Christ. What a way to start chapter 5 here by Paul. He's exhorted us to imitate God, but wants to be clear what practices he sees, though, that are not imitating God. So we've been called to walk in love, but he wants to set the line for what is the opposite of following after God and walking in love and draw that line for what's acceptable for Christians and what's not. So look with me at verse 3 as he continues to show us what the difference is between the acceptable behavior and the unacceptable behavior. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgivings. 
You see, Paul now talks to the Ephesians and shares these things of which, when engaged with, do not imitate God. That these are not the path for someone who is saying they are a follower of Christ. These things should not be what's coming about as the fruit in our lives. The first three things that Paul lists here, he instructs us not just to avoid or not just to not do them on a regular basis, but he says they must not even be named among you. No trace that no one else looking in from the outside would say, oh, I know that person, Jason, and he's a Christian, but I see a little bit of this aspect in him. I see a little bit of impurity in him, or I see a little bit of covetousness in him. Paul's saying no trace should be in our lives of these things. And he names these three aspects, sexual immorality, which is the Greek word pornea, which is sexual activity of any kind outside of a committed relationship, a committed marriage relationship. Paul's not saying, well, as long as you're in a committed relationship, but only in marriage are these sexual aspects appropriate. Outside of marriage, these are not okay. And so Paul draws that line. That if we're to follow after Christ, if we're seeking to imitate God, there must not be sexual immorality. Now, this includes all those things that we all know, but we try to maybe reason or think, could that be in line? No. If it's not in the context of marriage, sex has no place. That includes pornography. That includes movies that draw us to lust after people. That includes the way we speak. That includes the way we dress. All those aspects fall under the sexual immorality. Paul's saying, keep it in the proper place, which is between a husband and a wife, how God created it to be within marriage. Outside of that, it is not imitating God. It's not God's intended way, and it's missing the mark, and it is sin. He moves forward and says, impurity, which refers to a general uncleanliness. It's often coupled with sexual immorality, so it's no surprise that Paul links those together here. It's a sexual impurity that's implied And then he says covetousness, which refers to a greed. Perhaps even a sexual greed is what I read. What does it look like for a Christian to live a life that is above reproach? And we may read these things and think, well, where's the balance between becoming legalist when we view a text like this and having realistic expectations? We look at this and we say, this is impossible to live up to. We're going to fall, we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to succumb sometimes to the temptation that is around us. So is, can that not happen? Do we have to be legalistic and keep these lines so in the sand? And yet Paul would say, yes. Look at what we're called to be as Christians. We are called to be holy as God is holy. This must be our pursuit. These sins that Paul lists are to be absent from the body of Christ as we pursue our new identity in him. You see, we have been given a holy calling from God. It doesn't mean that we'll never fall or make mistakes or even be tempted by those sins or even give in to those sins. But there's a difference between giving in to the sin of lust and throwing up our hands and saying, that's fine if I lust. It's okay because I'll just be forgiven someday. Or it's okay if I continue to pursue a relationship outside of marriage that's sexual because God will forgive me. Or that was an outdated rule in Scripture. That's not what the text says. The text says that that is not okay. And so if that is the case in our lives, we need to repent and ask the Lord to forgive us and to continually seek to live in His will, continually seek to make our lives holy as He is holy. That is our pursuit. 
It's something we strive toward each and every day. Even when we make mistakes, even when we fall, we pick ourselves up by the grace of God and we strive forward asking Him to strengthen us, Him to empower us so that we may continue this journey seeking to be holy as He is holy. Well, Paul continues showing us what we are to abstain from as he names these things. He says, filthiness is to be avoided. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. This filthiness is not up to the moral standard seen throughout Scripture, and thus it causes disgrace. The foolish talk that Paul's speaking of is most likely a nonsensical talk. Often it's the kind that people would see at great banquets that would occur during this period when people would drink too much, and they'd end up being drunk And sexual immorality would be present and crude speech would be present and people would have foolish talk as well. Paul wants the Ephesians to be in control of their speech, to be aware of what they're saying and to speak words that have life and show the light of Christ. And that crude joking, joking that is malicious or sexually vulgar. You see, when I read this, I see that there is an importance in how we speak, in how we use our words, and how we use our lives. In fact, Paul shows us what we are to do with our speech. He says, let there be thanksgiving. You see, Christians aren't to be characterized by these negative attributes that Paul has referenced. We, as followers of Christ, are to be characterized as those who live with thanksgiving because God has given us every good and perfect gift. You see, you may be thinking, wow, Pastor, that's a lot of stuff that you've said that we're not to do. Is it really that big of a deal? Are there really any real consequences to how we live if we choose some of these aspects to ignore? And yet, that's what's happened far too often in this culture, in this day and age. A soft Christianity and gospel has been preached where we say, yeah, sin is sin, but everybody struggles with it, so just don't worry about it. And yet, when we read Scripture... That's not the response we see to sin. It's not a being okay with sin in our lives. It's a, we're trying to rip sin out of our lives. We're trying to flee from it. We're trying to get away from it. Don't let it have any grasp on our lives. We want nothing to do with sin. And we're going to see here in verse 5 moving forward why it's so important as Paul describes the ultimate consequences. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul says, For you may be sure of this, So pay attention. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul is so straightforward here. I almost feel like there's nothing I even need to say. He doesn't mess with his words. He is crystal clear in what he is saying here. Everyone, not just some who are unlucky, but everyone who is sexually immoral and impure and covetous will not inherit the kingdom of God. These three groups that Paul has mentioned, the sexually immoral, the impure, and the covetous, they correspond with the three categories of sin mentioned in verse 3 with the sexual immorality and the impurity and the covetousness. But how does this work, right? We all sin. We all have moments where perhaps we're impure, have impure thoughts. And Paul is not declaring here that anyone who commits one of these sins is excluded from the kingdom of God. Don't hear that today. 
Just because you've lusted does not mean that you will never get into the kingdom of God. That's not what Paul is saying. Because the beauty of the gospel message, if you haven't heard it before, is that God offers grace. That we fall and we make mistakes and yet Christ died for you so that you could find forgiveness for your sin. That's the beauty of the gospel message. But what Paul's saying here is that continually giving ourselves over to these sins shows that we are indeed excluded from God's kingdom. And what I believe that Paul is saying here is take sin seriously. Don't downplay it. Don't ignore it. Don't continue to let it have a hold in our lives. And don't continually give ourselves over to sin. Grace is an amazing gift from God. But that doesn't mean that we ignore the sin in our lives and continue to live in sin, treating God's grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Paul knows that there are those in the church, there are those in the culture who will try to soften the weight of sin and tell the Ephesians, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. And that's why Paul in verse 6 instructs the Ephesians to not be deceived by the words of those around them, by those empty words. These sins are why the wrath of God comes upon those who are disobedient. So don't allow others to downplay sin or to encourage you to neglect ridding your lives of sin. Flee from sin. Flee from immorality. Flee from covetousness. Flee from sexual immorality. Turn to God and set your life and your eyes upon Him, imitating His holiness. Receive His grace that washes you clean from your sin, that sets you new and draws you into his presence and to eternity with him. Paul continues in verse 7 saying, Therefore, so because of everything he's told us, because of all that he's listed so far, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. You see, if people are trying to deceive us, Paul tells us that we shouldn't partner with them. We shouldn't link arms together with them. And that would include with Christians who are downplaying the weight of sin, downplaying the importance of that, but saying, I'm still a follower of Christ. Be careful about how you interact with them and how you partner with them. There are reasons not to join together with these people. And Paul describes them as being in darkness and us now being in the light of of the Lord. And as light, we are to walk in the light, finding fruit in those things that are good and true and right. Part of our objective as followers of Jesus Christ is that we would seek to live in the light with our lives. And as we do this, we take Paul's advice here and we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This should be our daily aim as followers of Christ. What is it that brings joy to the Lord? What is it that we should be pursuing after that would glorify Him, that we can live in that manner with our lives? 
And it's because of this pursuit that we are to flee darkness, to take no part in those wicked ways, but to seek after God and what he calls us to do, to refuse to link together with darkness, recognizing that we are light in Christ and that darkness no longer has a place. But Paul tells us that we aren't to stop there. Instead of partnering together with them, part of our role as Christians is to expose them. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard in the church, oh, we shouldn't judge someone else. Oh, we shouldn't say someone else is living immorally, or we shouldn't say that that's a sin in someone's life. Who am I to judge them? And that's become an excuse for doing exactly what Paul's telling us to do here. Paul tells us to expose the darkness. And yet in this day and age, we don't like to call sin, sin, and we don't like to call darkness, darkness. We like to just let people do their own thing and let them deal with their own consequences. And yet that is not the loving way to live. And that's not how God treats us. He doesn't just leave us to our own accord, but he calls out what is darkness in us, forgives it, and calls us to live in light. You see, there is a difference between judging someone to damnation, which is what I believe that we are called in Scripture not to do when it says, do not judge, that it's not my place to say someone is damned to hell. That's not my job. I don't know people's hearts, and I can't tell someone if they're going to go to hell or not when I don't know their heart. But as a follower of Christ, it is fully within my wheelhouse to call out sin as sin. If I know a brother who's struggling with pornography and tells to me I'm wrestling with pornography, it is okay for me to say that's wrong and that's sin. That's not judging my brother as Scripture tells me not to judge them. That's calling sin, sin. And then part of that role is to love them and to say, let me help you get out of that sin and darkness. Let me walk with you and journey alongside you in light. And so Paul tells us here that part of our role as Christians, part of our role as the church is that we would expose what is darkness, these works of darkness. We have a duty as followers of Christians to expose the deeds of darkness by their conduct and by their words so that those who have gone astray will be convicted and will return to their senses, will return to Christ and to that grace that God offers them. In verse 12, Paul shows us why the reasons are that these deeds of darkness are to be avoided and are to be exposed. He says it's shameful to even speak of these things that they do in secret. Similar to the light and darkness theme that Paul's played on, he now contrasts the secret and the visible. If people are engaging in these secret, shameful, immoral acts, how much more offensive to God is this than speaking of them? And yet Paul tells us, don't even speak of them because they're so shameful. But bring it to the light. In verse 13, Paul says, anything that's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. You see, sin thrives on darkness. Sin thrives on being kept secret. It is so much harder to break free from our sin when we keep it to ourselves, when we keep it in the darkness, when we think, I can just deal with it on my own. That's one of the biggest lies that Satan keeps telling you is you can deal with your sin on your own. Yeah, maybe you can. Maybe through God's grace, you're able to pull yourself up and you're able to get out of that sin. And God is gracious and God is so loving. But so often, we need the help of a community, 
of a brother or sister who can be there with us. And when we name sin and confess it and bring it to light, something happens in freeing us from the grasp that that sin has upon our hearts. And it starts the process of freedom in our lives. And Paul knows that. That's why he tells us it's so important to bring sin to light, to bring that darkness to light, so that we can then have success in moving from darkness to light. Paul, here at the end of verse 14, appears to quote an early Christian hymn of sorts, which is based on several Old Testament passages, when he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The idea here is that we are to be dead to sin, and thus not to be enslaved by it. We have been encouraged by Paul to move into the light of Christ, to allow his presence to direct to encourage and to sustain us in our journey of discipleship. Paul has given us a lot to think about. He's really laid it out there as to how we are to live our lives, and yet he's not done yet. He moves into one more section of practical application for how we are to seek to live in light of Christ's love. Look at verse 15. He says, Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul wraps up our section this morning with a call for how we are to walk, not as unwise, but as wise with our lives. And he gives us what this looks like. He gives us the practical application of these multiple steps. He tells us to make the best use of our time. And we've talked about that here before. How do you steward the resources that you have been given? And often when people talk about stewardship, they're talking about your finances, your money. But there's an aspect of stewardship in terms of your time as well. How will you steward the hours, the days, the years that God has given you on this earth? Because one day you will breathe your last. One day your time on this earth will be done. Will have you used your time in a way that honors God and stewards well what he has given you? The second thing Paul tells us is to understand the will of the Lord. How important it is that we know what the will of the Lord is if we are to try to walk in his will. So that takes effort and time and study. It takes reading scripture. It takes praying and listening to the Lord and asking him to lead and guide us in our lives. Paul tells us to not get drunk with wine. This is an important one. Lots of people ignore some of these smaller things that they would deem as not as important, and they'd say, well, it's okay if I drink too much. I'm not harming anyone. And yet Paul is very clear here. He doesn't say that you can't drink at all. He doesn't say abstain from wine, but he says don't get drunk with wine. Because you see, we want to be in control of ourselves so that we can be following after God, so that we can be wise with our thoughts so that we can speak in a way that honors God. And all those things are impacted when we choose to get drunk with wine. So Paul tells us not to do that, for that's debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So instead of being filled with wine, 
which can lead to lots of negative things. Be filled with the Spirit of God, which will lead to nothing but good things in the light of Christ. And then he tells us to use the Psalms, to speak, to sing, to admonish one another, to make a melody to the Lord. How we act with our lives should be with an attitude of thanksgiving. As Christians, we should be joyful, filled with the joy of the Lord for everything that he has given us, even when we're going through hardships, even when we're going through sickness and trials, even when we've lost loved ones. We can still find joy because of who God is, because of his care for us, because of the grace that he has shown us. And then Paul ends with this last word saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there's two things happening here. One, it's a call for how we treat one another. That there are times to submit to one another, to place ourselves below one another out of reverence for Christ. To not always consider myself the most important one in the room or to have the most important opinion or objective, but to submit to others, to place myself below someone else out of reverence for Christ because of who God is, because of who Christ is and what he's done in my life. The other thing that Paul's doing is he's setting us up for next week. Because next week we're going to get into a fun chapter, a chapter or a section of scripture that's often been abused throughout the ages where it talks about how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And that word submission is going to come up again, which may make some people step back and say, I don't like that idea of submitting. But we're going to dive in next week and we're going to see what the biblical response is to handle that text well in a way that's God-honoring not demeaning towards one another, not being used to lord it over one another or to get our way, but what true godly submission looks like in a marriage. So Paul's laying the groundwork a little bit by saying right here, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's given us a lot of warnings this morning and a lot of application in this text. So I want to simply suggest three ways to practically apply this in our pursuit of Jesus this week. The first is that we would walk in love. You see, to walk in love means that we continually are seeking to love like Christ, to do acts of kindness that can make life bearable and even better for another person. Haddon Robinson, who is a well-known preacher, shares that one practical way to express our love costs only the price of a postage stamp plus paper, ink, and a little thought. He says, all of us have felt the nudge to write a letter, an unexpected note that could brighten another person's day. Perhaps it's a note of appreciation, an expression of concern or a compliment for a task well done. Too often the letter goes unwritten and the impulse is unexpressed. We convince ourselves that we don't have the time or that the letter won't matter. But Hatton Robinson shares about a young minister who cherished a note that he received from a busy architect in his congregation. The letter said simply, your sermon met me where I was on Sunday, at the crossroad of confusion and hurt. Thank you for preaching it. Those words met the pastor, Robinson says, where he lived, at the intersection of discouragement and pain and encouraged him to keep on in his ministry. The note took less than five minutes to write. So perhaps you can think of someone who needs encouragement, thanks, or a reminder that you are praying for him or her. So walk in love today to the mailbox. You see, often we think that our applications for a biblical text have to be these large, grand applications. In order to apply the truth of Scripture, it has to be something earth-shattering. 
And yet I love Haddon Robinson's point that even a simple card is walking in love, is showing Christ's love to others. So find a way to walk in love this week by showing others the love and kindness God has shown to you. Secondly, seek to walk in wisdom. To walk in wisdom. My watch that I have here, it counts my steps. And Amy has one too, and often towards the end of the day, we're comparing our steps, trying to see how many we got to. And we both have a goal on our watch of 10,000 steps, which some days is more achievable than others. And some days it leads to one of us walking laps around the house trying to finish our steps because we really want to get across 10,000 steps. Now, there's no reward. There's no huge gain when my watch hits 10,000 steps. I don't get a prize. But yet, I track what I'm doing. I watch my steps, and I pay attention to if I'm hitting my goals. And yet, how often in our spiritual lives do we not track our progress? Do we not set goals? Do we not pay attention to our spiritual steps or to how we are growing? To live our lives with wisdom, to walk in wisdom, means that we must live according to the Word of God. I love how Benjamin Merkel, who's a professor of New Testament studies, at Southeastern Seminary puts it. He says, knowledge and awestruck reverence of the character and ways of the God of the universe are the very foundation of true wisdom. Without such knowledge, we are merely grasping and hoping to find wisdom. You see, walking in wisdom may not always be as easy as just putting on a watch and letting it track your steps, but the amazing thing is we have been given tools by God to help us in our endeavor of walking in wisdom, to help us increase in our knowledge and our wisdom of who God is. The primary way we have is Scripture. God has given us this Word, which is so accessible for us. I watched a video last week uh, of a friend who went to Ethiopia. He went with Northwood Christian Church up the road to go and celebrate that this uh, village had finally received the Bible finished in their dialect. And they want to have a party to celebrate. And watching these Ethiopian men and women dance and cry and cheer and celebrate, they were so ecstatic at the fact that they had the Word of God in their hands, that they could open it and read it and know what God's wisdom was. You see, we often take it for granted. I have a bookshelf full of Bibles. And yet people are so joyful that they're crying because they finally can read God's Word. And yet it's so accessible for us that we often forget the most obvious. So if you want to know God's wisdom, go to His Word, read about who God is, and grow in your understanding of Him. The second is prayer. Go to the Lord in prayer. Grow your prayer life. Prayer is like a muscle that the more you use it, the more it will grow. The more you listen to the Lord, the more you'll be able to hear and understand His voice. And I wanted to give you a gift today to help you in that pursuit. It's this book that I got called Praying the Bible. And it's a thin book, so don't be scared away by it because it's really short. It's a quick read, and part of it's appendixes. So I don't know if you're like me, but when I read a book, I just chop out the appendix right away, and I'm like, okay, 89 pages. That's all it is. That's like an afternoon read if you can get your kids to watch something and be busy. Or maybe if you don't have any kids, if you can skip your nap for the afternoon. So 88 pages, small little book, praying the Bible. But what this book does is it walks you through how to pray with Scripture. You see, sometimes we go to prayer and we say, I don't know what to pray anymore. 
I feel like I'm praying the same thing over and over again. I just have my list that I go through. Lord, be with my kids. Lord, be with these people at church that I know who are struggling. Lord, give me endurance and faithfulness. And it, it starts to get boring. And so sometimes we pull back and we give up on praying. We don't pray as often as we should. So this book walks you through how to use the Psalms to pray. And it tells you that if you use the Psalms to pray, your, your prayer life will never be boring. And you'll find that the Psalms actually will start to hit all those things that you were praying for anyways, but in a much more profound way. And in a way that relates your life into Scripture, which is a beautiful thing when we come under Scripture. So these will be on the table in the narthex. Take one, take two, take three if you know somebody else who would like one. Uh, they were a gift given to me by Crossway. So I like to give those out and encourage you guys with them. So please take those, and if you don't use it, pass it on to someone else. But let it lead you to prayer. The other aspect of how we seek wisdom is in community. We join together because you have something to offer I don't. And perhaps I have something to offer that you don't. And someone else has something to offer that one of us doesn't. And when we come together, when we bring our experiences, our lives together, we're able to offer wisdom that points to God with one another. So make wisdom and walking in it a daily pursuit of your life and see the light of Christ grow in you. And the last one is to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit each and every day. One of life's greatest enjoyments for Suzanne Wart was riding her Harley Davidson motorcycle. In a devotional article for Covenant Publications, she wrote about cruising the streets of Chicago with her friends late one summer night. They were riding along the shores of Lake Michigan, enjoying the bright moonlight and the gentle breeze off the water. Suddenly, the lead motorcyclist took off and several of the group went with him, reaching speeds of 100 miles per hour. Susanna says that she was tempted to join them, but she didn't. She knew it was not safe and it was against the law, so she held back, continuing at a normal speed. Sometimes the ways that others live seems far more attractive and exciting than our Christian life, and we're tempted to disobey God's commands or compromise principles from His Word. But we are called to live each day with self-discipline and spiritual discernment. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as the wise. So we need to ask the Lord for his help, so that we'll see situations through his eyes and make wise choices as we obey him and stay within his limits. That is when we'll find true joy and satisfaction. The wise know God's limits, but the fools know no bounds. You see, sometimes we think that walking in the Spirit has to be this profound act. And yet I've found in my life that the Spirit often moves in a gentle, gentle nudge. And it can be missed if we're not paying attention to it, if we're not seeking to walk in the Spirit. I think of Elijah when he goes up to a mountaintop and the fire comes and God's not in the fire. And the earthquake comes and God's not in the earthquake. And finally that gentle breeze comes and he knows it's God. He puts on his shawl and he goes out to meet with the Lord. And in my life, that's what the Spirit has been like, a gentle breeze. Sometimes it's just giving me pause about something. In my spirit, I just sense I'm supposed to pause here. Sometimes it's something as simple as someone coming to my mind that I haven't thought of, and I think I'm supposed to pray for them. So I pause and say a prayer. And then I find it to be a great practice to just send them a message, say, hey, the Lord brought you to my mind. I'm praying for you today. 
You see, there are going to be times in your life when you try to walk with the Spirit that He will lead you, that He will impress upon your heart the direction you are to walk. Pay attention. Pay attention to these moments. Because I can tell you that when these moments come, that is the way of the Lord that you are to go in. That is the path that the Spirit of God is instructing you to move forward in. And if you ignore it, you are ignoring the Spirit of God. These may be times that they are small aspects. They may be times when they are big aspects. Like I said, for me, they've been as small as just remembering to pray for someone. And they've been as big as leading my wife and I to move from Portland to Denver, Colorado because of the Spirit's leading. The Spirit of God wants to guide us and lead us. It's a gift that God has given us that Jesus tells us we should be grateful for that he left his spirit for us. So we must trust that the spirit knows best, has your best interest in mind and is trying to help you mold your life to the likeness of Christ. So seek to walk in the spirit. Seek to tune your ear to those gentle nudgings of the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you this promise. The more you listen to the spirit of God, The more you follow through when the Spirit guides you, the louder that voice will get. The easier it will get to discern the Spirit of God speaking to you over your heart's desires or over what culture says or over what just you think you want to do. Because you'll begin to understand how God speaks to you and you'll be able to identify His voice clearer and clearer each day. And then you will have that gift of being able to walk in the Spirit knowing when God is leading you. Friends, our time in Ephesians this morning has proven to be fruitful and full of truths for our journey following Christ. So may we continue to seek to grow as disciples, to mold our lives to Christ. My prayer for each one of us this morning is that we would be in tune with the Spirit's leading in our lives each and every day, and that we would become beacons of the light of Christ in our world. So as we head out today, may we be encouraged by Paul's words this morning. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for Paul's exhortation this morning, for how clearly he laid out what is sin and what is walking in your will. So Lord, give us the strength to walk in your will. Give us clarity of mind. Give us clarity of hearing your spirit And Lord, help us to hone those skills so that our lives may be a sacrifice given to you and may honor you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.